Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to this edition of All Options Considered. I'm Tamver Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. On this episode, we will dive into the latest goings-on in the volatility landscape. Later, I'll be joined by Professor Gregory from the University of Oxford to talk about the current economic cycle, valuations and crypto markets, amongst other things. A key feature of this economic cycle has been volatility, as well as the poor level of liquidity. The high level of uncertainty, combined with central banks having drop their forward guidance and moving to a more meeting-by-meeting approach, as well as the wide dispersion of macro forecasts, has seen volatility elevated this year. Now, the epicentre of that this month was actually in the UK markets following the mini-budget, which sparked a huge move, particularly in the bond markets. The political premium from the volatility market has been reduced following the replacement of the Chancellor as well as the Prime Minister. Also the BOE indicated that the liquidity position of UK pension funds has improved and most of the LDI community are now able to handle a significant increase in guilt yields. We expect the volatility in the UK bond market to continue to bleed lower and it's conditional on political volatility remaining low and the market needs to see a sustained period of stability to help restore confidence. So overall an improvement in the political landscape could help speed up the decay of volatility from levels that we saw as unsustainable over the longer term. Now the ECB is draining the punch bowl and crushed the risk-free profits that banks are making on the cheap loans that came about from the pandemic period. This probably sees the loans used for arbitrage purposes being paid back. Now, the change in language in the statement saw a dovish market reaction with the end of the rate hike cycle coming into view. As they indicate, substantial progress has been made in withdrawing accommodation. So the writing is on the wall that the pace of hikes may slow given the downside risk to the economy, policy rates getting closer to where some ECB members have judged the neutral rate, It takes time for policy rates to have an impact on the economy, but it all depends on how sticky inflation is near the peak. So rates volatility isn't out the woods yet, and the key feature of this cycle has been volatility, with the high level of uncertainty and wide range of macro forecasts. At inflection points, different pieces of economic data can send different signals, and on top of that, we have randomness. So this can all support choppy two-way price action. So implied vol may fall as it becomes more clear that the room for rate hikes is narrowing and the actual vol of the market declines. Now I'm joined by Professor Besharov from the University of Oxford 
Gregory, good to have you on. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great to tell our audience a bit about your background. Sure. I'm lecturer in finance at Said Business School at Oxford. So uh, we're here both having taught each other and learned from each other already. Let's get into the current macro environment. And obviously, inflation's top of mind. If we focus on the long-term equilibrium rate, you know, we have these secular forces weighing on rates, whether it's debt, technology, or demographics. Uh, so that's been a multi-decade trend. Do you think that trend has now been broken? Yeah, I mean, I think that you've asked precisely the right question. It's one that lots of market participants and academics are asking right now. You know, we've had this you know period for for 40 years of the great moderation where interest rates have been coming down. Uh, inflation was um, kind of uh, was reduced tremendously and you know prices were were stable you know and by stable we mean stable according to a central bank uh, which prefers to have low levels of inflation to none so not actually stable but central bank stable and people were talking about lower growth rates going forward you know there was this idea of secular stagnation that because of demographics because of technology for all kinds of reasons that we would be in a, a low growth, um, high valuation world. And that's, I think, the question that people are asking right now. Is that going to continue or not? And you know, that corresponds to things like multiples on risky assets and so forth. And so as we think about what's happening to markets, what happens to the economy as a whole, it's, it's that question which is going to drive it, I think. And as these rates go up, things start breaking. And we saw that happen in the UK, which particularly the bond market that just had some historical moves and uh, led to pension funds using leverage, having to raise cash due to collateral calls. So tail risk modeling of collateral and liquidity risk has, you could argue, has failed for some pension funds due to the speed of the rise in the yields, right? Now they'll have to consider the amount of leverage they use going forward following the recent volatility. Yes, certainly. And I think we're going to learn more, a lot more about that. I, someone once said that journalism is the first draft of history, and I think we'll continue to learn about what was going on within the pensions over time, and in particular, you know, what the UK pension regulator was doing, because according to reports in the news, it was actually encouraged by the regulators for pension funds to you know, structure their portfolios in this way. Uh, certainly, they took on, on tail risk. They were compensated for it. And you know, as we've seen many, many times in history that you, know, you can get paid for taking on tail risk and, and, that, and that works until it doesn't. And as a result, right. you know, firms, pensions, you know, investors blow up as a result. So that's what this looks like at this point. And I think we'll see more about it as, as time goes on. And leverage is usually at the scene of the crime when you have these blowups, right? And we've seen through history, actually, it's about the first order magnitude of risk being taken that isn't understood by risk managers. Yeah, well, uh, tail risks you know, happen infrequently. That's the definition of the risk being in the tail. And these things happen you know, rarely relative to things like people's careers. So you, know, you can have you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years of career without having a you know, one in 20 year or one in 30 year event. So from the perspective of people who are actually you know, making decisions about portfolios, it's entirely understandable why you know, they might be tempted to to ignore tail risks, uh, because there's really an asymmetry in um, in how they'll be affected, even if, if those tail risks are realized. And this is 
actually an issue with some of the risk measures such as uh, value at risk where you may see traders that move into markets that appear to have low risk and historically low volatility but it's actually moving into a more riskier space just to push the envelope given the constraints imposed on them from risk managers using uh, measures such as VAR. Yes, certainly. And of course, there's an endogeneity to the risk as well. You know, people talk about this in various ways. Sometimes credit is given to, to Minsky uh, and people talk about the Minsky instability hypothesis, which is that it's not an equilibrium to have financial stability. The result is that if there is financial stability, then then people gear up, they take on more leverage. And the, the result is of that of that leverage is that the market becomes much less risky. You know, that's something that is credited with um, the crash um, in, in 1987, um, where there were firms that had the portfolio insurance strategy. And it was something where you know, firms were trying to manage risk in a, in a particular way and that they couldn't all do it in the same way. And it seems like something similar may have happened here as well, where the liquidity that would have been present for one firm using the strategy was no longer available when many market participants had the same strategy. So the instability we're seeing across markets isn't actually happening in crypto world, particularly Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, Bitcoin's historically an 80 vol asset versus the S&P 500, which is around about 12 vol. Yeah, and it's really remarkable how stable these major cryptocurrencies have been. You know, there are lots of jokes online, of, you know, talking about uh, pound sterling as, you know, being a, um, I won't use the, the term that's commonly used, but a, a low quality coin as a result, because, you know, the volatility of one of the leading world currencies is much higher, um, you know, has been higher in, in the very recent past than for some of these cryptocurrencies. It's a, it's a real change from what we've been seeing in previous years. How do you see the valuation of Bitcoin? I know you do lectures on valuations of companies. In terms of the value of Bitcoin, it's clearly not derived from transaction flows. And as it stands, it's actually more expensive and takes longer to transact in Bitcoin versus credit cards. The promise of Bitcoin originally was was for transactions, and of course that's changed. That it, you know it doesn't look like Bitcoin is going to be able to used to be used directly for many transactions. There are of course layers that are being built on top of Bitcoin, where sometimes people think that those can be used. I I think that the jury's still out on that, and we have to see whether that happens or not. Uh, to get at your issue of valuation, you know, yeah, the way that we teach it in class is we we think about uh, expected cash flows in the numerator and the appropriate discount rate in the denominator and figure out present value. And in the case of something like Bitcoin, it's really not clear what those cash flows are. Uh, you know, what what benefits are, are you getting from using it that you can that you can quantify? The kind of things that it's used for now, um, certainly there are, it's, it's being used for both tax avoidance, uh, which is legal and tax evasion, which is not. It's being used to purchase uh, illegal goods and services in various kinds of ways. And, you know, it's also being used as, as a store of value. So, you know, certainly as we see currencies depreciate relative to Bitcoin, you know, there, there are people who are thinking, boy, you know, Bitcoin would have been a good store of value for me to have had it. So we can certainly talk about those kinds of uses, but calculating the value for it, trying to justify any particular number, you know, I don't see people trying to do that anymore. I've seen it in the past. I don't know how you would do that at this point. Well, yeah, there's no earnings or residual value on this thing so yeah the narrative has obviously 
evolved. Initially, it was a vehicle to transact, and then it was an inflation hedge, then it was a tail risk hedge. You know, I would say that kind of theoretically, there are a lot of times, though, that we have, you know, when we see in economics and, and finance, you know, something that should unravel from the end. That is, you don't know what's going to last for forever. And if you do some kind of backwards induction, that should mean it has zero value today. You know, we see this sometimes with cooperation, for example, or, or evaluation of other things. You know, the the theoretical implication is that the value should be zero. And, and we see that cooperation can be sustained, that things have value that's greater than zero in other situations as well. So it's not unique to Bitcoin, um, where you have something where one could construct a theoretical argument that it, the value should be zero today, when really, you know, that we, we see that it doesn't. How anonymous do you think Bitcoin is? I mean, we saw that story about the FBI able to recover most of the Bitcoin ransom paid in the ransomware attack on the largest pipeline system for refined oil products in the US, right? You know, there is that narrative that, you know, this is decentralized, uh, it's anonymous. How do you see all that? Yeah. So this is one of those things where, you know, is it decentralized? You know, who knows? There are, you know, people who point out that the Bitcoin traffic travels through a small number of ISPs. And if you corrupt the ISPs, then you can affect, you know, what's happening with Bitcoin. And so, you know, whether it's actually decentralized or not is an open question. With regard to anonymity, you know, of course, Bitcoin isn't perfectly anonymous, uh, but I think that's actually helps Bitcoin, right? That if for in situations where, you know, a cryptocurrency is, is entirely anonymous or where it can be perfectly used uh, for, for money laundering or criminal activity, then um, you get much more regulatory oversight and, and prohibition. You know, Bitcoin has been um, prohibited in, in some countries, but but not in, in many of them. And I think, you know, the fact that uh, that legal authorities can actually, you know, trace the most egregious transactions is one that, quite frankly, allows Bitcoin to continue to exist, right? That is that there are, you know, to the extent that there are transactions that uh, countries and governments are, are worried about, they can can investigate those and the rest of them can, can proceed. So I don't view the the lack of total anonymity as, as being, you know, a problem for, for Bitcoin. I, I guess, you know, taking this back to, to finance theory again, which is what I'm supposed to do, you know, we think about optimal portfolios and ask what should be, you know, in an optimal portfolio. And, and the answer is some you know, diversified collection of assets. And if you believe in efficient markets, well, then you, you don't you don't try to outthink the market. You try to hold, you know, assets based on, on their valuation that the market's giving them. And so people are making the argument that from that perspective, we should all be holding some of the different types of cryptocurrencies. Now, I'm not advocating that in, in any means, but I'm just saying that if you take it back to the, the academic literature, there are more academic ideas. There are reasons to think that, that you should hold these kinds of new real assets that are being developed. Yeah, going back to the move hiring rates, we saw you know an effect in the UK with pension funds, what else is on your radar in terms of things that may break? Two, in terms of valuation of property. Property as an asset class doesn't look particularly great given where uh, rates have moved and where mortgage rates are. What assets do you see outperforming in this environment? Yes. So just to, before we move on entirely from, from pensions, you know, something else to keep in mind is that the future obligations of the pensions are now being 
discounted at higher rates as well. So as the value of their assets has fallen, so is the the present value of their liabilities. And, and that's one of the reasons, one of the things that we're going to learn more about, you know, how have those changed? We know that the value of their assets have fallen, but how does that compare? How what's the, the delta, the differential relative to the change in their liabilities? We've actually yeah. seen the funding ratio in the UK go up to 135% and liabilities have come down a lot relative to assets purely from this rate dynamic. Yes. So there's a lot of room for um, asset prices to fall without the pensions being uh, underfunded. So to move on, I think that embedded in your question was the very asset class that I would have brought up, which is um, real estate. Uh, in the way that people get mortgages is typically as, as a fraction of their income. Sometimes people say you don't buy a house, you buy a mortgage. That is your, your mortgage broker tells you how much you can afford per month you know, based on some fraction of your income. And then you put that into the you know, mortgage calculator and that tells you how much you can borrow with, you know, rate. And so suppose it's, you know, some amount like, you know, $2,000 a month that you can afford. Well, the amount of mortgage you get from $2,000 a month is now a lot lower than it was last year because interest rates have gone up so much. And that means that you know, people aren't going to be able to, to pay the same amount or a house as they could have previously. And that's undoubtedly going to put pressure on, on housing prices. One of the things that was very interesting to me in, in coming here to the UK from the United States was the difference in the residential mortgage market. So in the United States, uh, there is much more reliance on long-term fixed rate mortgages. So it's very common for people to have 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Again, you know, a mortgage that doesn't change. You get your rate and that rate and that payment are constant over your full 30 years. Here in the United Kingdom, like that product, you know, it doesn't seem to exist on, on high street. That is, you know, you get a fixed rate for, for a couple of years, two years maybe, or five years, at which point your rate adjusts. And so when I think about what's going to break, I just don't know how people are going to be able to afford their mortgage payments if the interest rates go up and in the amount they they owe resets. I think this is going to be a, a huge problem for a lot of families at a time when energy costs are going up, food costs are going up. And I suspect, you know, based on how much intervention we've seen from fiscal authorities around um, in, in the UK before, that there's going to have to be some kind of governmental response to this. Well, that was part of the problem with the mini budget, which was obviously the delivery of it was a bit of a car crash and it pushed up the money market rates. And for mortgage holders, it's not the actual bank rate, current bank rate, it's the, the market rates that you know, they care about in terms of how much they have to pay. So for them, it's the pain is here and now, right? Yes, very much. And, you know, really, you know, that takes us back to one of the things that we were talking about previously, which is what's going to happen with, with inflation and interest rates going forward. You know, in both the United States and the UK, we're, we're seeing much more active fiscal policy, you know, over the last couple of years. And I, when I think about the question of whether inflation rates will, will stay high and whether interest rates will have to be high to deal with that, you know, it's really about that. In the United States, we, um, the Biden administration has just launched uh, the website where people can put in their details for the student loan forgiveness. And this is hundreds of billion dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of essentially fiscal stimulus. And we've had various types of other stimulus programs. And if that sort of thing continues, then central banks are, are really going to be constrained 
in their ability to uh, increase interest rates and keep it and reduce inflation to where, where they want it to be. It's actually quite unfortunate for those who have paid off their student debt, or actually those who don't go to university, they may feel, you know, we're paying taxes to fund others to go to university. Uh, certainly. I mean, there have been analyses of, you know, who benefits from this and who doesn't. And, you know, the, the distributional implications aren't, aren't fantastic for the student loan forgiveness. But, you know, at the same time, there are lots of, of tax provisions that were passed under the Trump administration, which were, you know, highly targeted towards the very, very wealthy. And so, you know, I, when I compare across administrations, like, yes, um, this particular policy is perhaps less progressive than, than others, um, but it's, you know, much more so than things that we've seen in previous administrations. That's great. Thanks for joining us on this edition of All Options Considered.